freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. Right, you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Uh, Welcome to Free Association. It's just after 4 p.m. here in, uh, I I would say, sunny Newcastle if it was sunny. We've just had a massive thunderstorm, so those, uh, it's a bit overcast in Newcastle this afternoon. But it's 4 p.m. It's 11 o'clock on the East Coast in the States. I had a show planned that's completely different to the one that I'm actually going to do, so I don't know how this is going to turn out. Uh, it, might all, it might all end up being me playing a video. I, we'll see how the monologue goes. I, I haven't written anything down. I'm just going to talk. So we're we're kind of we're kind of dancing with death at the moment. There's a feeling in the air about genocide and about eugenics and about wars and about survival of survival of the human race in general and individual survival in particular. It's all it's all to do with death drive. Freud might have got a lot of things wrong, but he got he got death drive pretty much right, I think. And uh, it's hidden. It's it's an underneath. It's an undercover kind of thing. There's a there's a thing that runs underneath experience for for me at least. I didn't know it was there, and I, I knew it was there once or twice. When I when I was kind of I used to have this thing when I was in London where if I was on the on the underground on the uh, London underground at any of the stations when the 
when the trains come in, it's like, do I chuck myself in front of this train? It was a weird feeling. I don't know whether anybody else gets that. I get that when I walk over bridges as well. It's a, do I chuck myself off this bridge or not? It's a weird thing, but that's a death drive. Showing up as a kind of random suicidal thought every now and again. It's a, it's a strange thing that you don't normally even notice. But that's what's possessing the human race at the moment. That's what's possessing science. That's what's possessing religion. When you get all these Armageddon, end of the world cults that show up on a fairly regular basis, it's all about the death drive, ultimately. It's all about the death drive. So we're dancing with death all the time without even realizing it. And uh, the thing is, when you realize it, you can start to let go of it. It's a survival instinct. It's a, it's a need to protect possessions and protect the things, the food that you've got around you or the food you've got stored or whatever. That's the death drive. That's, that's what Freud meant. At least that's my interpretation of it. I don't know whether that's what he meant or not, but uh, that's my interpretation. And the, that's what I see when I look around. Is is, and I kind of fell into that last week with the with the whole bio warfare thing that I was on the, the kick that I was on last week because bio warfare is about death drive. Gain of functions about death drive. So it's all it's all sitting there under the surface. You're not going to notice in normal conversation around the dinner table, but it's still there. It's still definitely there. So that's a very, very bad link into a documentary about Iron Maiden making an album called Dance of Death in 2002, I think it was, something like that. Anyway, here's a documentary. <laughs> there we go. We allow ourselves six weeks to write the album and uh, we don't write on the road. So it's all a bit of a nerve-wracking experience really because uh, it's exciting but it's worrying at the same time because you never know what you're going to come up with. And obviously there's pressure because you have to, you've got to come up with the goods and uh, make sure you've got a great album. Well, here's my stars for the start of the album. It says, luck holds a microphone. <gasps> It's, no. It says it's time to trust your talents and see how far they will take you. It was the first album we'd done in the winter in England, and it's just Number of the Beast. So it was definitely a feel about the band of, oh, you know, this is um, going to be a special album. Martin Birch um, went off and retired playing golf or whatever, and good luck to him. Um, but, it, you know, we, I suppose really we were looking to replace him, to find someone to replace him, and I think we found that person. And. Um, as long as Kevin feels the same when we're making future albums, I'm sure he'll be the guy that we work with. I think we've been very fortunate and blessed having two great producers, but also great people to work with. I mean, Martin was one of the greats. Kevin Shirley, in many ways, is, 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 is Martin Birch for another century. 
you can't really approach Maiden the same as you can a lot of other bands. They have the sound that's kind of like so unique to them. Now a lot of bands then they don't really have an individual sound, so they want someone to create that. We don't. We just have. We have sound that is um, intrinsically Iron Maiden, and what we need is someone who can collect that sound and put it on a tape with all the excitement that's in the studio on how, how we play live. I really like to work best when I can capture the essence of a band, and in order to do that, you need to put them into a live situation, pretty much. So I always, in looking for the studio, you have to find a place where. You can isolate them and still get them performing so that they're a group. To be honest, it's the only way I really know how to make a record. Bruce in his box. The guys are definitely a little bit, oh, we've never done that before. We always put the drums down first and then the bass. And, and you know, I said to Steve, well, you'll be standing here next to Nico and we'll put your amp and it's going to go in that thing and he was like mm, I don't know I think I'm going to have to overdub it. At first people were a little bit apprehensive about it and then as soon as we started doing it we were like wow this is great why didn't we do this 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. They all start off like this you see they all start off like this you see. Then they turn into this and then it's crossing out. Sign that for you. A lot of bands go in and put a, the, put a, first of all, they put a click track down, right? which for me kills right? the music. What's that? Exactly. <laughs> so we went in and we did it live Ew. and we kind of, it, 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 when you do that, mm. the music breathes, there's gaps, there's mm. feelings mm. in there. And I think a lot of bands don't do that anymore. And that's one of the reasons why it has a freshness and it has a live feel to it. Yeah. In the dark, Mr. Yannick goes, we've, we've locked him into a very tight space so there'll be no swinging around. No singing, no moving, no dancing. No dancing. Just fiddling about. In the dark with the cowboy. With Dave. <laughs> oh, you are no Dave. <laughs> There's always kind of a very special energy on live stuff that you don't get from overdubs. There's a kind of a precision that you get from overdubs that you don't necessarily always get in the live thing. And I tend to really try and marry the two so you get this great energy on the live stuff. and. Then you go back and fix some of the, of the elements of precision that you need with the overdubs. It makes the, makes the life of the performer much easier because you just do what you do, which is perform. You go and stand in front of a microphone or with a guitar or whatever and you just let rip. And you don't worry about somebody going, just a minute, hang on, we're going to drop you in, drop you in on the word the. Ready? Great performance, the. Bang. And you start halfway through a line. It's appalling. I mean, it's a terrible way to, to do things. <laughs> you have a laugh, when, a good laugh when you're making the album, which is really important. And, um, but he's firm, you know, about certain things, you know, when it needs to be. We have this idea where the band is going to come out on stage looking like the village people. We want to know which one you're going to be. <laughs> um... I don't know what to say to that one. It won't be the one with the stars, I tell you that. <laughs> I've got a bit of Rosa, mate. <laughs> You're nicked. <laughs> to be the Indian one, The Indian. Oh, Which one? I, I want to be the Indian. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to be the cowboy instead. <laughs> Bob the Builder. He <laughs> yeah, can't come here. <laughs> and Adrian's a stunning rack of guitars over here. Oh, Squire Stratocon. Sustain on that one, this. Oh, wow. It's a sustain. 
Can I touch it? No, no. It's a stain. First off, Kevin's uh, he's a fantastic engineer. <clears throat> and, you know, he gets a great sound very quickly. He sets it up, you go and put your headphones on and go, hello, this car, oh, Kevin, that sounds great. <laughs> let's, let's go sing, you know. We are usually recording um, within hours of walking into a studio. You know, not, you know, oh, it took us 10 days to get a snare drum sound. I'm not that clever. I put microphones on drums and then I record them. It takes literally like 10 minutes to get a drum sound on the car. They make these incredibly beautiful, expensive microphones that capture sound. And I put them on the drums. And if he tunes his drums well, they sound nice. And if he doesn't, they don't. That's the secret to the Nick of a Brain drum sound. He understands what we want instinctively. So all the guitarists, Steve, Nico, myself, we all have a little itty bitty mixing desk by our microphone or instrument and we can do our own mixes of what exactly what we need to hear. Someone's been messing with my headphones. There'll be trouble. There should be. You can't do that in conventional recording studios. You have to ask, could you have a bit more of Steve please? Which really is an obstruction, it's an obstacle. Vodka. It's actually vodka. It's got vodka. It's fully vodka in there. Me and Dave only drink vodka. Vodka. <laughs> Don't drink water. Disguise this water. <laughs> it, it makes you go faster. <laughs> we'll cut one track. We'll say we're going to concentrate on this track today, and then we'll cut the live bed for the track. Um, and sometimes we get the live bed in two or three takes. Sometimes we'll be two or three days until the song gets the right kind of feeling. Basically it would be a track down every day or every, every other day yeah, we could put yeah. something down, yeah. So if we get two hours of takes and we'd get eight great takes of one song, we, we don't need that's enough material to last, um, last Kevin a week. <laughs> and this is Brad lining up analog tape, would you believe? We're recording on analog tape. Iron Maiden going to analog. Yeah, yeah. As you'll be able to tell from up here, some of the song titles. I might edit between different takes of the songs to get different feelings in different sections. Let's pick these eight performances apart. Let's find out what the best bits are. and Let's try and get one great take out of the whole thing. Normally, before we've wrapped that up, I'll have Bruce do five or six vocals that I don't really concentrate. Just let him run a couple of live vocals while we still in the spirit of the song. Um, and then basically all the tracking is pretty much done in the first two or three weeks. Then we uh, set about just fine-tuning the lyrics, fine-tuning the, uh, the melodies, uh, doing the solos. 
you're working with him individually as well, so you're going in when you're adding things. Yeah. And he has, say, the ability to pull out the best mm -hmm. as a band, but also, you know, individual. And then uh, we just wrap it up. I think the last record maybe took, a, you know, maybe 10 weeks, three months to finish up from where to go. Some people go, oh, yeah, we did five tracks in one day, or we did three. You know, it's not about that anymore. Yeah, in the early days, it was like, oh, look what we did. We did an album in 10 days, you know. Uh, it takes as long as it takes. Um, but it, this album was, was just very, it had a magic about it in the studio. Please, nice Is that a sex symbol? If you could get yours through that hole, yes. <laughs> we had seven tunes worked up, uh, rehearsed and written in the rehearsal period before Christmas. So we went in armed with seven tunes and the other four were um, worked on in the room. Listen, and then we'll take some, then we'll do a couple more. Uh -huh. Come and have a quick listen, and then we'll go back out there. And you can see what you're doing and see where everything's going. Kevin's good at making sort of good suggestions about a song, and he has good insight into what I think makes us tick. And he knows uh, when to say, okay, let's you know, let's take this track, and uh, I think we got it, you know. Whereas you know, we'd still probably be there, <laughs> you know, arguing about it. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that I bring to the project and that, you know, help facilitate this relationship that they all have with each other. But it's very, very much fun to be part of it. I mean, you're, you're privileged to be in the studio when that's going on. Just can't do it again. Yeah. What I would say is that when we were in the garage, yeah. you weren't seeing that. Moment. I think there was a tra the transition on the one we did before, from that, that melody. If we came out, that was cleaner than that one. Nico brought one idea in, and he, the guys gathered around, and he played his song on bass guitar, Nico the drummer, and they learned the song and practiced it, and maybe for a day or two, and then we cut it. And that was New Frontiers, I think. So, Nick, what are you guys doing today? 
learning a new tune, yes. getting ready to uh, practice it for the first time. See? And then uh, hopefully we'll get it recorded later on today. So oh, good. Once we've uh, worked all the kinks out and all that bits and bobs and uh, put a bit of fairy dust all over it, we might... Uh, sprinkled on the top. Sprinkled on, you know. Oh, oh. the lovely Edward. Oh, you see, don't you? Yes. Yes, yes, you'll see. And my lovely skinny legs, dear boy, yes. I wrote this, the, the, the verse riff on the bass guitar. That's like Steve does. It was very, very, you know, see? And uh, wrote some lyrics, which um, I presented to the band. Um, Adrian helped me with the bridge and chorus, and we, we kind of collaborated on that part of the tune. He plays bass really well. Plays a lot like Steve. <laughs> but it's probably because he's been listening to him for so many years. And um, he had this riff. I said, that's great, let's work on that. And uh, I added some bits to it. I think everybody was a little surprised, uh, Nick coming in with uh, an idea, because it's been 20 years he's been in the band now, and it's the first time he's actually coming in with anything. So I had to sit there in front of Steve with his acoustic bass, he had his electric bass, and show him the bass line. When he showed me the bass lines, I thought, well, it sounds just sounds like me. And he said, well, what do you bleeding expect after 20 years playing with you? So I thought, well, OK, fair enough. And Harry went, here. He said, do you want to do the bass on a tuning? I said, well, you ain't playing the drums, that's for sure, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing, really, that there's no drum solo in it, I suppose. But, you know, it's just, um, I mean, he was really quite straight. And other songs, we were sort of trying to actually get him to play straight. On his own one, he was playing straight naturally anyway, so... Reading that what you will, really. But, yeah, good song, though. If it wasn't worth it, it wouldn't have made the album, yeah. you know. So. It's, it's got Maiden stamp on it, yes. you know. They come yeah. out, it's a great idea. And, um, and basically, it was Maiden Eyes, you know, the six of us started playing this song, and it's just created this only thing. It? Yeah, it was good, because it, it yeah. did bloom. Nico's full of beans and a lot of fun, and they play together. The three guitar players have, uh, you know, enough maturity to sit down and work through what they want to do. Arm wrestling. Fist fighting. <laughs> How do we choose the solos? Give us a little weedly weedly. No, loud, super loud. If Davey writes a song and it's you know, a shorter song, he'll play the solo. Same with me. We all have our strengths and, and weaknesses, and so you try to sort of put them to the best use within the framework of the song. <laughs> I had the, the opening riff, I was just kind of doodling about as you do. I just found it very captivating, very haunting, and uh, thought I've got to do something with this, and it just suggested to me some kind of conflict or some sort of battle, you know, uh, you know, typical maiden material really as soon as he started playing the little guitar figure at the beginning I you know you're there people know me for the more you know to the point straight stuff so I thought well I'll have a go at writing something a bit longer you know see if I can do that the lonely intro that Adrian came up with kind of inspired the the lyrics really for um, First World War Passion Down which is um, you know the place where there's in the front line trenches and stuff play it as Steve and he, you know, freaks out, so we got to do something with this, and he started scribbling his pages of words, you know. And we had the song, at the end of the day, we had, we had pretty much had the song together.
it's just a very atmospheric song. It's heavy but moody and and um, also I think a little sad. I was you know, just transported and I could see star shells and like newsreel footage and mud and I was like, wow, this is great stuff. Say it goes out one time. It's too rare the accents are in the reverse, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Ah, gotcha. Good. Shall we have a track? Because otherwise we'll never know, will we? <laughs> Passchendaele is going to be sort of monumental track, and um, musically there's a lot, so much stuff going on in there, so you have to really like knuckle down. The gaps should really come out of nowhere. You know, when we end of it, when we it, when we do 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 it, when we surpassed himself I think it's just such a great song I think it's really you know not that he hasn't done well in the past he's done some great songs in the past but I really think this is going to be something that will be uh, an epic on stage without a doubt I have to say they are like family now he knows what we want and um, how to go about getting it so um, not really any problems I mean sometimes you know we'll come in with a few odd ideas that that um, may be a little bit different to what kind of where we wanted to go with or whatever, but he's not afraid to come forward and say it, but we're not afraid to say no or yes or no to it, you know. When we finished Dance of Death, I took the album to George Marino to master it, and uh, he was uh, such a great mastering engineer, he's done everything, you know, from ACDC to everyone. And he said, oh, the bottom end is all wrong, the bottom end's all wrong, and, you know, I sat there and I was like, ooh, you know, but. So I said, well, do what you do to it. And so he sort of tried to make the bottom end fatter and this and that and top end nicer. And uh, I was kind of like second guessing myself at that point because he kind of really, you know, knocked me down. So I sent a CD to Steve. And of course, he's been Iron Maiden for 30 years now. And he just said, no, that doesn't sound anything like the mixes that I heard in the studio. So I was like, well, thank God for that. But yeah, the final say is with the band, and Kevin agrees as to what it should be anyway. It's basically, it's our album. He's the boss, actually, Stephen. I'm here to um, help facilitate these guys and make the records that they make uh, and take them to the next stage. Yes, Papa. Does it sound all right? I can't Sounds tell great. Can't tell no, it's really... It's getting really good. You want to hear a little? I mean, the album is is um, mastered from a CD that I made for Steve. It's not ideal, <laughs> but that's what the that's what, that's what the master was at the end of the day. I had this old I had this old uh, really old Apogee digital converter that um, I just smashed the crap out of it to put it on a CD for him to play in his car, and um, then I printed all the other you know half inch and 96k versions. And he just loved the crunching of whatever that <laughs> that horrible converter was. And so 
at the end of the day, I think he went to Tim Young and he said, just transfer it off the CD. That's how I like it sounding. That's how I want it to sound. Each album is, is like diary of part of your life. And so you're very proud mm. of everything we've done. It's been, you know, you walk away from the studio thinking, feel very satisfied, very rewarded, you know, from doing this album. I thought it was a fantastic record. Um, I think, you know, the progression, it is getting a bit more progressive, but it's still got the weight. And there's just some fantastic musicianship. Brave New World was a very, quite an upbeat album, I think. And Dance of Death kind of returned to some of those darker images from like, you know, the sort of number of the beast, peace of mind kind of stuff. We were really excited about playing Dance of Death live, you know, Passchendaele, uh, the title track. We were really excited about the album. We're always really confident with material and we think it's really important to do that new material. Um, it's, it's a challenge for us, it's maybe a challenge for the audience. To me, rock and roll should be unpredictable and it should be exciting and if you're doing new songs and you're bringing new things to the pop melting pot it just gives it that uh, a measure of excitement you can't get by doing the old songs. You're trying to create a mood or um, some imagery or something kind of in, in your mind when you're writing words and stuff like that and that in turn creates imagery for like the album artwork and for videos and stage sets and everything. I've tried to get the set list off them or a good idea of it, a good nine months before we tour so I can sit down with the production guys who build the set and work out you know what backdrops we might want to use have we got them do we need new ones how's all that going to work how do we make it the best it can be we were working on two tours at once we were doing the give me head tour and we're designing this one in tandem which was was very good it's quite nice to do two at once it really challenges you <laughs> So I went to meet them in Luton Hoo, which is a decrepit stately home, where they were doing a photo shoot for the Dance of Death album, uh, which is where I then managed to get a bit of a grip on the concept. The idea of the strange figures, the Venetian kind of feel. Uh, I had a bit of a chat with the band, as, as, as always. And so I came back with this, which was my take on what they were trying to do, uh, at which point everybody was quite excited. So that was, for me, very good. Those beautiful pictures that are on the inner sleeves, um, you know, that, that was the general first idea. Then we saw the model, well, now I saw the model, and I thought, wow, that's, that's incredible. There's Reapers everywhere, you know, Eddie the Reaper and this and that. The show that we put on was very theatrical and it was a very conscious thing because the material sort of felt like that, needed that. It was also dangerous because it's a bit of a heavy metal cliche to do castles and all that kind of stuff. It's more like a Dungeons and Dragons type of feel to it, kind of castle kind of thing going on there. And so it, it really kind of creates a real kind of mood for, um, for some of these, these songs like Dancers death itself. The band were taking a little inspiration from the model, I'd taken a bit of inspiration from the photo shoot and somewhere in the middle we collided and, and, it, and obviously got it right. The parameters of the back line and the stage set are static, they stay the same, they've been the same for years. Look, come on, come on, keep up. Monitor, speakers, that's Yannick's. And you've got Steve's monitors, he has two because he's the boss. Okay. So he can stand on this side. Or you can stand on this side. See? Through my monitors, I just have basically like kicking snare drum, um, smattering of toms, 
um, and a bit of my own vocal, and it's about it really. I don't have any any guitars or anything else because it's like walls of guitars up there already. So I like to have my own little zone where I can hear the drums and myself. The Bruce's wedges, as you may have noticed, they're different than everybody else's because you can do this, and they don't move, and you can do this. And they don't move. And they make him look taller. And then we've got Adrian's wedges. Now these are definitely a prop. Because Adrian has in-ear monitors. He doesn't use his wedges. And you've got Davy's wedge. As you can see, you know it's Davy's because it's got a big chunk missing out of it. Where for the last 20 years he's been sliding his guitar on it. So that's how we know that's Dave's. We go in here like this. And we have the drum fills. Custom made for Nico. Uh, only two are like it in the world. People have probably noticed over the last couple of tours, I probably don't go on the riser, drum riser, so much anymore. And that's because Nico always, t you know, tends to when I go up there, he'll whack the cymbal nearest to my ear, and it absolutely just blows your hearing out, really, you know, for the rest of the show. So, and it actually hurts, believe it or not. We always know Nico is going to be centre stage. I think he'd be very upset if he wasn't, actually. And here I've got some side fills. That's, I've, I know I've got those in the same way I know I've got two eddies. Certain things are fairly standard um, in that we do like the walkways at the back and the side for Bruce and it gives Bruce a great platform to run around as well and not bang it to Steve on the floor all the time. And uh, we like the ego ramps as we call them which are the three thrusts from out the front of the stage. My first impression was it was really it was really busy you know with the floor and that and I thought well you're not going to see us on that but actually when I saw it in full size, it was incredibly impressive. I love that thing when we open the, the reveal and everybody kind of goes, ah. They don't really go, ah. But you think you hear them all collectively going, ah. Typical day on the road. Somebody trying to wake me up in the morning. <laughs> About 7.30. Go down the gig, take a look around the venue, at the stage. Loading, we normally started at 8 o'clock. You always G up the, the local crews, you know, saying, you know, this is a record, can you beat it? Just over by those toolboxes there, mate. Two or three weeks in, we were ready by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Start with lights, rigging lights. Lift a bit, right, okay, right a bit. Be over with lights by around 11.30, midday. At the same time, sound would be coming in as well. Around midday, the set would come in with the back line. Backline boys would be off stage somewhere, you know, prepping their gear. Set would go up on stage. Basically, we've got a, a couple of towers that get built either side of the stage with some grim reapers in them. It's the hardest part of the day. Nobody else appreciates it, but then we don't like to talk about it. We just get on with what we do. No, no, I don't want any more thanks. 
Reaper coming through. Supposed to be 18 inches tall, but they got the dimensions wrong and they ended up being 18 foot. Just put this artwork material that's got Velcro on, attach it all the way around the set. And amazingly enough, as if by magic, it'll end up looking like a medieval castle. be all ready to for, for line check around two o'clock. They haven't done a sound check since it must be I don't know 82 or 83. It's a real blessing. Yeah we don't want those guys around. Slow it down. They've got such a good ground staff as far as like the backline personnel, and each guy will emulate their artist as close as they can, playing the guitar, playing the bass, the drum technician, chunk, 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 chink, chink, chunk, chunk, la, 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 bang, bang, boom, boom. Next, between myself, the monitor engineer Gonzo, and the backline technicians, we know exactly what every artist needs to have and to make it work for everybody. I look after Yannick Gers, guitars. This and this is his main one. This is a uh, Fender Strat, and uh, he told me that Ian Gillen gave him that. Now, I hope I'm right in recalling that information. Yeah, the Fenders, Marshalls, they just work so well w within the context of the band and the songs because, say, there are a lot of heavy parts of, in these songs, and also there's a lot of clean parts. So with a switch of a button, the Fenders can, you know, can, can really take on that sound. You know, you can have a nice, real clean sound, heavy sound. And so Fenders and Marshalls, they go hand in hand, you know. Now then for the sex part of the day, the male end entering the female end. Fantastic. In the 80s, we had all these kind of exotic amps and we used to go on fridges, you know, with the, all these kind of effects and lights and compressors and uh, delays and chorus and everything like that. But, you know, you come full circle when you go back to what you used at first, your 100 watt amp, bit of delay, wah, and that's it. Can't beat it. Four electric guitars are used for the show. Two main guitars, both Fender uh, Tobacco Stratocasters. Floyd Rose tremolo systems on it, which was nice. And that's my story. Goodbye. Especially as demanding as these songs are, and with three guitar lineup, it's easy for it to become a train wreck. On a 50-foot wide stage, uh, say between Yannick and Davey, if they're hearing each other real well, they can they can lock in. But if there's some passages where it's very quiet, there's no drums going on, maybe just a hi hat. It's real easy for them not to lock to each other, so it takes a lot of discipline on stage. And still look like you're having a good time and rocking out, you know? And they pull it off real well. Hello, I'm Michael Kenny. I take care of this bass guitar here. First started in sometime in 1980, so my cadaver will probably be doing this um, long after I'm gone. People wonder where the blue bass went to, and this is it. It's the one he plays 99.9% .9 of the time. We foam the straps. In fact, I use load strap in there so the straps won't break. 
and then that all gets covered by a sleeve. I needed something to cover the tape because the tape always caught his hair. very first one I did was actually a pair of knee socks that I cut the feet out of. But then leg warmers came in, so we used leg warmers, and then they went out, and we couldn't get them anywhere, so actually my mother knits these. <laughs> my kits normally stay the same. Um, the only thing that may change is the symbol configuration. I might change a particular symbol here and there, just because. The only thing that was different was the artwork on the drums. It was, uh, you know, a 12-point star, a Premier Series drum kit, maple shell. Same as, that's what I've used forever with them. No, all these microphones go to a splitter box and they're separated into two different paths. One to the front of house and one to monitors. Uh, basically, front of house does the audience and monitors does the, uh, the, the band on stage, the sound on stage. Well, typically, Gonswa, I'd get through a line check. 20 minutes, top to bottom. Yeah, yeah, check test one, check, The first thing they hear is, it's like when they're on stage. They've learned to rely on us to do that. It makes it much more streamlined, and in the end of the day, it's a very positive way to go about it. We send cars to pick the band up from their, their homes and arrange to get them to the um, private airport at Stansted. Uh, they brought you out onto the plane after a brief security check, and you take off. Uh, you land the other end, and there's cars on the tarmac pick you up, take you to the hotel, and you miss out all of that really serious security uh, business, you know, and having to check in baggage, etc., etc. So it doesn't, it, the, the stress factors to the band are totally wiped out. It's a lot easier. We're just on a magical mystery tour to the airport to, uh, to pick up the band. Uh, we're playing the festival tonight, and uh, Poland's always been a pretty special place for the band because they've always been uh, hugely supported here. If they had the Starship Enterprise and they could beam me up, beam me down, I would get beamed straight from my living room to the side of the stage and get beamed off again at the end of it. Lovely. Got your finger over the lens. That's not going to come out, mate. There you go. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Hanging around for hours before a gig, your stomach's kind of knotted up, you can't really eat, you, you know, you, you can't have a drink. Well, I don't drink before the show. Um, you don't know what to do yourself, to be honest. Various band members have various press things to do. Some done in the hotel, but invariably they're done at the venue before the show. There's one in particular who's uh, not great at timekeeping, he'll remain nameless, he knows who he is. I like to be really chilled out before a show, uh, which may seem odd because I go running on stage and hurtling around. And, um, but the, the best state of mind for me before a show is to completely forget that there is a show. I don't really want to sort of go through any sort of thing where I'm thinking too much about the show because then you, you start thinking of all kinds of weird and wonderful things and, and um, I probably would get really, really nervous. I do get a little bit nervous sometimes uh, at certain shows. I've found, for past experience, if you lay around all day in a hotel, just channel surfing, you're actually more sluggish in the evening. Wherever we are, go for a walk and have a little walk around the town, wherever it is, and uh, just suck in a bit of where I am. Wherever we go, it's all right, got me bags off, off, off I go. Where are you going? Oh, I've got to have a strut. 
He goes out looking for the Irish bars. Then they go back to the dressing room, have a cup of tea with the crew, have a little chat, uh, grab a banana, sustenance, <laughs> and then they just get changed. Probably about 10 minutes before the gig. I do a few exercises. Uh, just, you know, similar sort of exercise you might do before a football game, just to sort of loosen up, really. And then you, you, you turn it, switch on, really, you know. And I think going, walking from the dressing room to the stage, you know, you're kind of psychologically preparing yourself for, you know, for that, you know, for the show. No matter how, how much you do it, there's always that twinge of excitement, anxiety. We're a very big act. The shows are all sold out. You can't have a, a bad night. The energy level rises and everyone gets a bit more, you know, excited, a bit more animated. So you kind of all share that kind of vibe thing together. And then I like to just stand behind the curtains and when the tape's playing, and just listen to the crowd and see, try and get a feeling for what's happening out there. You can hear them pretty loud backstage anyway, you know, uh, chanting Maiden, Maiden and whatever, you know, just before we're going on. So that's enough to get anyone sort of uh, frightened, I think. Of course, once you get on stage, it's just a great release. When you go out there, it's kind of like an atom bomb going off that first song sometimes. It's a very physical band as well, mate. The energy that goes in for that whole period of, you know, nigh on two hours on stage is a lot. Wildest Dreams, yeah, it's, um, that was probably the, the first thing I, uh, I wrote, really. I sat down and just thought, well, we've got to do an album. What have I got? <laughs> it's an up-tempo, you know, fairly optimistic. I'm going to live my life and do what I want to do. Sort of a driving kind of riff. And I sort of sort of put it together in a couple of hours and then played it to Steve and he said, that made a great single. And he wrote the words. There we had it, you know, it was uh, pretty, came together pretty quickly. It's an up-tempo song, which is good to play live. It's catchy. So uh, it had all the ingredients for a song that we could, you know, be a good taster for the album. Fans generally reacted to it incredibly well. You know, it, it was kind of, kind of concept. In fact, the, the show was very, very dark. And uh, when you see the concert footage, you'll find that it's actually, it was really difficult to film. It was actually very dramatic and very dark, um, very difficult to suppose to film right as well, but very moody and it's very difficult to capture that on film, but um, that's what we wanted. And I think it worked really well. You know, I mean, Dance of Death Itself and Passion Dale, stuff like that. I mean, just really, you know, I mean, give me goosebumps even watching it back.
Lance Death was the basic idea of Yannick's really, and he came to me with it and he said, look, I really think that you'd be able to do something with this because it's, he thought it was uh, up my strata, as he said. It just really inspired me, you know, just the, the kind of uh, the feel of the, the stuff. And I was able to put some guitar melody lines to it and the, the vocal melody lines and words. I don't know whether this evolved out of a, um, a dream that Steve had that's similar to Number of the Beast. Bruce thinks that everything I write comes from my dreams, I think, because uh, I, I, I suppose it does crop up every now and again, but uh, no, not in, this one, in, uh, Dance of Death, wasn't about a dream. It was just a, I don't know, it was just a, um, getting carried away on my own imagination, really. I'm really pleased with the way it's turned out. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a really, really strong song. It's very atmospheric. Um, it's almost a bit kind of eerie, I think. People looked at Dance of Death, the actual song on the album, and sort of went, we're not sure about a bit, bit sort of Jethro Tully, bit finger in the ear sort of stuff. And yet you do it live and it's just, you know, we're not asking the audience to clap, but they do it spontaneously. Bruce is very good at the theatrical side of this. And he and I chatted before the tour started and we came up with a couple of ideas. He came up with the idea he wanted all of the, the walkways lit in red, because there's that line in the song about uh, I was walking on coals. But the stage set is so, has got such clean lines to it, I didn't want to clutter it up with unnecessary lighting units. So I just put the lights we were going to use on the set, under the set, and up lighting. Means you don't get the clutter, the lamps are not seen, and it provides a slightly different effect, which you don't see very often in, in Maiden shows. When you see the, the performance that Bruce gives and the whole theatrical thing, you know, it really turns it into something special. It just brings out, it just draws out the whole idea of the story. Let me tell you a story to chill the bones out of things that... We've done two tours back to back and it was important to come out with something a little bit different. Bruce enjoys it, he loves hamming it up. Hammer horror. Oh, I'm going to have some time for a costume change, you know. <laughs> One night wandering in the Everglades. I was walking around a museum store that was going out of business and lying in a box were two Venetian-type masks. I thought, wow, dance of death, that'd be great. So he wears the mask and then he puts this on top. How about I wear it? There <laughs> we go. <laughs> Not aware of a presence so near to me, watching my every move. And then when it came time to go and get a new pair of trousers, I think the brief I gave her was look, sort of what Shakespearean sort of punk type vibe. discussing the masks and I said could we try a cape? These are two costumes from the uh, Dance of Death so Bruce sort of comes off stage as quite a quick change into that. And then he comes on as a sort of Grim Reaper type thing. This thing and he puts over his head. Again, that's towards the end of the song, so he's got to. And he likes that, I think, a lot. 
All right, so that was uh, a bit of an Iron Maiden documentary about uh, an album called Dance of Death. I lost track, track of Iron Maiden quite a long time ago, so I had no idea that that album even existed until uh, a few weeks ago when I discovered the documentary. But uh, it reminds me that I, at one point when I was in London, about, what, 30 years ago or something like that, I was in a a production of a, a a stage version of Weird Sisters, which is a Terry Pratchett novel. It's a Discworld novel, and uh, I got I I actually play I played the Grim Reaper in that. So I was. I didn't I, had, I didn't have any lines. Well, I had lines, but I wasn't saying the lines. So I, I had it. I had the, the kind of death mask and the scythe and the cape in black and I had to walk on stage and then somebody would say the lines from off stage and then I'd do what I, whatever I had to do on stage, which I can't anymore, and then walk off the stage again. But in, in that particular show, I was playing six different characters. So I did, I, I only had like, half a dozen lines and everything else was just kind of silent off the off kind of slightly off center stage characters that didn't really do very much and didn't really say very much but uh yeah i'd, I'd forgotten about that that was in I, I genuinely had forgotten about that there you go so there's a the thing uh, I played King Neptune as well. They did that. Tw they did, did that to me twice, where somebody else would say the lines from off stage, and I just had to walk on in costume and shake me hands and shake me fist about or whatever it was I was doing. Uh, that was in uh, uh, Dick Whittington pantomime. It was a a pantomime. Anyway, so. I played King Neptune, and the, the set was rattling about a bit. It was kind of wobbling. So I was sat in this sat in this kind of throne as King Neptune on one side of the stage. And because the set was wobbling about a bit, I was holding the set with one hand. I had me my arm behind behind me holding the set up while I'm while I'm sat in this in this throne. It was uh, it was interesting. My amateur dramatic days were were interesting. It's not what I was expecting to do with my spare time. It has to be said, but it was fun. It was fun, and uh, we had a full house for all of those shows. We did three shows. We had 150 people in each show for that pantomime. It was absolutely chock full. Now, was it 50 people, 60 people, 150 people altogether? Because it wasn't it wasn't the biggest. It was just like a little community centre place. So there must have been about fifty people at each show, and one hundred and fifty in total. All girl guides and their parents, basically. It's all kind of teenagers, but it was fun. It's a it's a kids show for Christmas. Uh, I know the I know Americans worry about people in drag but you can't do pantomime without without a pantomime day i mean it's it's a normal thing in britain nobody worries about drag it's just a thing that people do 
Uh, and pantomimes where it came from, because in the 16th century or whatever, women weren't allowed on stage, so the men had to do the women's parts in the in the theatre. That's where the drag where that's where drag comes from. So it's theatrical, it's it's drama, it's it's a performance. I don't think it was ever meant to be taken too seriously, but if people do take it seriously, then good luck to them, really. If you can do it, most people end up looking like their grandmother or their mother when they do drag, with too much makeup and and a beer belly usually. Not not the not the best version of a woman you've ever seen in your life. Caricature version, but it's. But it's pantomime. It's not meant to be taken seriously. All right, for now. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crip Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crip Rick's iPhone, thank you. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth Jihad.